We're in part two of his cross, uh, looking at how Jesus interacts with the cross. And as we talked about last week, the cross is the center of who we are and how we can be. The cross is very central to what it means to be a Christian. It is an act of love, it is an act of sacrifice, and it represents life, even though it is an instrument of death. And so oftentimes we can talk about walking with Jesus or the Christian life as the way of the cross. It's a a phrase I really enjoy, the way of the cross. Last week we saw Jesus being offered shortcuts to achieve good ends, good ends that, that were not bad and were not bad things, but were shortcuts to avoid the cross, to do it the easy way and avoid the pain of the cross. We're going to talk about that more today. So if you will turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31. Uh, I put up here Matthew 16, 21 through 28. That is the parallel passage where Matthew also tells the story. Uh, We are going to touch on Matthew, but we're going to read the account out of Mark. Um, So follow along in your Bible as we read Mark chapter 8, 31 through 38. And it's actually, I'm going to stop at 37. I don't need 38. Um, So... Mark chapter 8, 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We'll stop there. Now, this is a pretty familiar passage to probably some of us at least, especially the phrase, get thee behind me, Satan. I still, I see, I still know it in the King James. Get thee behind me. Get behind me, Satan. But we want to look at the wider context here. And the important thing to understand is this narrative, both in Matthew and in Mark, is linked through Peter. If you you look, the immediate the immediate previous story in both Matthew and Mark is Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah, where Jesus had started by saying, who do, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, John the Baptist, or, or well, you're the prophet Elijah, or whatever. And then Jesus said, and who do you say that I am? And Peter, always the front of the pack, always leading with his mouth first, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Messiah. Christ is just another word meaning the Messiah, the chosen of God. You are Messiah. And so this is a big moment. And then immediately following, both Mark and Matthew then tell this story. So we have to understand that that Peter is what pulls these stories together, and we usually take each story as a standalone, and we miss something bigger here. We'll see it today. Now the next thing we see, and I show you this stuff, Because one of the big goals is that you will continue to learn more and more how to study your Bible yourself. Uh, Not that I don't have a role in teaching, but you shouldn't just be dependent on me. We want you to be able to study your Bible and see these things yourself. So if you look at verse 32, 
you see that he says, he began, he began teaching them this, stating the matter plainly. This conversation that he's having about going to Jerusalem and being killed and rising again is not, this is not a one-time event. He is, this is something that's going to happen over and over again. This is not a one-time event, uh, but uh, rather is what he's doing. And then this moment that we're going to, the narrative brings us today is here's what Peter does after his confession with what Jesus is teaching. And it says that he says that he was being rejected and killed. It says he was being rejected and killed. And it says he was plainly speaking. Here it says he was plainly stating in Matthew, the disciples say, wow, you're just saying that straight out. This isn't a parable. Up until now, Jesus is kind of kind of buried it a little bit in, in parable, saying people aren't ready for this yet. It's kind of like easing them into it because it's going to be such a big, hard thing for them to grasp. But now he's like, okay, guys, let me be really clear. Here's what's going to happen. And no parables anymore. He's just stating it out. I'm going to go up and I'm going to be, I'm going to end up in conflict with the elders and priests and scribes and they're going to kill me and I'm going to rise again. So then, in verse 33, verse, verse, Peter two, uh, <laughs> verse 32, Peter takes exception to this. And so, normally what would happen, if you've watched any of the chosen, they do a good job of showing this, you have Jesus walking with the crowd. But he starts with, it's just Jesus and kind of the core group. And then there's a bunch more following along. So here, now, Jesus has been talking, and Peter says, come here a minute. And so they step off by themselves. And so Peter's talking to Jesus. He says, listen, dude, no, you're not going to die. That's not going to happen. Jesus turns around and says, guys, guys. And he, he draws in the rest of the disciples. So this isn't just a rebuke. This is not just a conversation with Peter. This is to teach them all. What's going on here is to bring them all into understanding what he's doing here. This is not a personal attack on Peter, although there is a personal aspect of this conversation. So then we have to get to the name-calling here. He calls him Satan. And I, I've been wanting to get here, I think I've brought this up in a previous time. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. We need to just talk about that name for a minute. So the Bible makes it clear, all the way through the Old New Testament, that there was this powerful spiritual being, an angel that was created pretty much higher than all the other angels, but basically the, the most impressive angel, that this angel decided that he himself could become God, rebelled against God, and has been opposing God ever since, has been working against God ever since, and that this powerful being is, is now always against God. In the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, this being is never given a name. And that seems weird to us because we're like, I know a ton of names for him. But he's actually not named in Scripture. He is described. And here we have the word Satan, or we say it in English, Satan. But it means accuser or adversary. And they've just taken that word in another language and Englishized it, turned it into an English word, but it just means adversary or accuser. 
And so when, so it's a job description, not a name. This is what this being does. Now, this is important to understand because names in the Bible are important, as we know. Names were given to describe oftentimes what the person was, who the person is. And, of course, what is the most powerful name? Jesus, the name that is above every other name. And so a lot is put into this idea of name, the value and the importance and the honor of a name. I will make your, what does he say to Abraham? I will make your name great. So this adversary, this opposer, is never named. Instead, he's always just described. So now the word opposer, or I'm sorry, not opposer, accuser or adversary, when they're referring to this, this being, this spiritual being, now to mean him specifically, they just put the article in front of the word. The adversary. Or in the original, it would be the Satan. The Satan. The opposer. So here, he doesn't call Peter the opposer. He just says, you're an adversary. Get behind me, adversary. Now, here's just one other note to help buttress this more. As they, in Isaiah, Isaiah is writing to uh, Jews who are living in Assyria, living in Babylon. And so that's their culture. That's what they know. It's a pagan culture. Well, as we know, a lot of pagan cultures, they look at the stars, they look at the sky, and they, they spiritualize it and see gods. And all the cultures that do that, who's the biggest, baddest god in the sky? The sun. So Babylon had the sun god. He was the big one. He was the important one. And Egypt had Ra, the sun god. And in the morning, when the sun god comes into the sky, when the big god comes into the sky, all the other little gods run away. They go away. The stars. But there's this one star that resists the power of the big god. And it stays up there longer than everyone else. It's... it's it doesn't like to give in. So it's called the morning star. We know it as Venus. And so that culture had the morning star, which opposes the great God. So Isaiah, writing to people in that culture, but writing to Jews, takes those words and recontextualizes them into the biblical picture of God. And he's no longer talking about the sun god. He's talking about the most high. And so he describes the opposer. And he says, oh, how you have fallen, oh, star of the morning. The power, the lesser power that opposes the great one. And so he just uses the word for morning star. And so we have the translation and we see that star of the morning or the morning star that has fallen, that has opposed God. And it's just describing the same entity. When they translated the Bible into Latin, they translated morning star into Latin, just like morning star is English. You know what it is in Latin? Luciferos, morning star, the star, the, the God that opposes, the power that opposes, the, mor the, the Luciferos. And what did we do? We repeated enough times that we turned it into a name, Lucifer. But it's not a name, it's just another description. And I think it's significant that he's not named 
because he doesn't even deserve that honor. He is the opposer, the accuser of the brethren, who, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's described by what he does. He is not named. We have other angels' names, Gabriel, Michael, but the opposer is never named. That's a little side note, but I think it's important to understand that as Jesus turns to Peter, he says, get behind me, opposer. Get behind me, adversary. He's not calling him a bad name. You devil, you, all right? But what's his point? His point is that, that Peter is working against Jesus. But here's the thing. Peter thinks Jesus needs encouragement for a lack of confidence. The Jewish understanding of Messiah was, and, and I borrowed some of this from Tim Keller, the Jewish picture of Messiah was a strong God who would have a strong Messiah who would come down and conquer and, and redeem everyone, and which for the Jewish mind and the Roman rule was meant you kick Rome out. And they couldn't wait to be out from under Rome's thumb. They were so sick of Rome, which is why they hated tax collectors, because tax, co- tax collectors worked for Rome. Traitors working for that, those terrible people. And Messiah was going to come in strength and overcome this. So here's, so now Peter has said, you're the Messiah. And they know what that means. And then Jesus starts going, I'm going to go up and they're going to kill me. And Peter's, Peter's not being inconsistent. He's being fully consistent here. And that's why the story is trying to tell us that. Because Peter's just said, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to die. No, you're not. Why not? Because you're the Messiah. And Messiah can't die. Because he wins. He's our champion. And we've been waiting for him all our lives. And now he's come. And you're him. And so Peter is, is still on the Messiah bandwagon. And he's like, Jesus. He just thinks Jesus needs a little... A little self-confidence. Come on, dude. No, no, no. It's okay, man. Don't get discouraged. You're going to make it. I personally, this is just a theory, but I personally think this is Judas's issue later. Because Judas was probably a zealot who believed in the violent overthrow of Rome. And these men had seen that Jesus had power. I mean, he's like healing people, and then he brought that guy back from the dead. They're like, okay, we know he's got it in him. And we believe he's from God. He's Messiah. But man, he seems like he's pulling back. He's, 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 he's not confronting Rome like we are. And I think Judas says, all right, let's give him a push. I'll provoke. I'll get him arrested. Then he can't avoid this anymore. This is my theory. And he thinks once the soldiers show up and try to drag Jesus off, that that's when it's going to come down. Because the Jewish mindset was very clearly, they were expecting a battle. They really believed that it was going to end with a big battle. Same as we still do today, right? Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a big battle. That's what they thought. So once you know that that's Jesus, well, now it's time for the battle. Jesus lets himself get arrested. He's tortured all night and sentenced to death. And Judas goes out and hangs himself because the whole thing fell apart. That's my theory. So Peter here is trying to be encouraging. You can do this. But Jesus sees a temptation. Matthew 16, 23, he says, you are a stumbling block to me. Peter, you're in my way. Peter, you're, you're trying to trip me up. Peter, you're an obstacle. 
Peter's trying to help Jesus accomplish the mission. Be Messiah. Jesus is like, no. You're hurting the mission. You're in my way. You are a stumbling block to me. Why? Well, he says so. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man. You are on man's interests, not God's interests. And then he explains what he means. So then he takes the next step. So he started with Peter's talking to him. He goes, guys, let me talk to all of you. Peter, you're not helping. You're an adversary to me. Your interests are wrong. But he's trying to teach all the disciples. Why? Because the rest of them are thinking it too. Peter's just always the one who gets it out first. Peter's the, he's the early adapter. He's the gung-ho guy. The rest of them probably all think the same way. Peter's just the one who always gets there first because he's Peter. So he says, guys, let me talk to all of you. And then he backs up. All right, everybody, listen. And now he goes big with the whole crowd. Verse 34, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. What, profit, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What is he describing? He's describing the difference between man's interest and God's interest. Because man, God, is Jesus has come, what? To deny himself. To give up his life. To go to the cross. And what is man's interest? He want to gain the world. He want to win. We want to conquer. He's like, no, Peter, that's, that's not what we're here to do. That's man's interest. Let's apply this a little more. We want spiritual success without sacrifice. We want the glory and the gain without the cross and the suffering. Or as I put it another way, we want winning, not seeming to lose. Again, referencing Tim Keller, because I listened to a sermon this last week that really spoke to me a lot from him. And if you want it, I'll send you the link if you, if you contact me personally. But talking about Paul struggling with Messiah. Because Paul, he knew Jesus could be the Messiah. Why? Because you have a strong God who is a strong Messiah, which makes a strong battle. And Jesus shows up, and he is apparently cursed by God because he hangs on a tree. And the Bible says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So obviously, Jesus is not the Messiah because he was weak and he was cursed. So he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah will be strong and win. And then when Paul is faced with Jesus, he has to reassess his whole system. Jesus is the Messiah? Oh, what happened here? I thought he died because he was a sinner, because he died with sinners in the way that sinners die. But now he's been glorified. He's been raised from the dead. I, I just met him. Well, then whose sins did he die for? Ah, there's the question. He didn't, he wasn't cursed for God because of himself. Paul had to figure that out. These guys haven't figured it out yet. And sometimes we, we want the glory and the gain. We want the good stuff and not the hard stuff. And as a result, we misunderstand God's interests. And that's why we need to understand the whole story of Peter here 
Because Peter isn't disloyal, but he is off track. Because this is, and that's why the, the narrative says we start with Peter going, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And you're not going to die. And Jesus is like, Yes, no. No, you, you, you're, appreciate your loyalty. No. Because let's think about this. Let's back it up just a little more because we get too deep into the story and we miss the bigger picture. Jesus had come to serve and suffer. He had said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life. And what is Peter saying? No, don't die. He's like, I came to die. That's why I'm here. Peter wanted him to rule and win. Peter's like, you're going to do it. She's like, no, I'm not. I'm going to die because that's how I win. Imagine if we could come alongside Peter that moment and say, Peter, so here's what's going to happen. Because Peter would be like, hey, we've met the Messiah. We are following the Messiah. We've been waiting for the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Amen. Hallelujah, Peter. You're right. And so here's what's going to happen next, Peter. Messiah's going to die. And in a few years, Rome's going to come in and level Jerusalem to the ground, destroying the temple. Peter would be like, wait, what? No, that's not how this plays out. Messiah is back. Messiah has come. Messiah is here. We're going to win now. Rome is gone. We're in. No, Messiah is going to die, and Rome will destroy your city, including the temple. They can't imagine that. That doesn't fit in Peter's idea. Because why? Man's thinking. That's not what... That's not how we picture it, right? But Jesus had come to serve and suffer. And Peter wants him to rule and win. And that puts them in conflict. He's opposing Jesus. He doesn't even realize it. Why? Well, think about what Peter, Jesus has been offered first by the devil himself, and now indirectly through Peter. Jesus already had power, glory, Good things. Jesus already had all this. He's in heaven. He's God with power and glory and majesty and honor. Omnipotent. He already had that. He didn't come to earth to get it. Coming to earth was about giving it up. So the whole exercise has not been about getting these things. It's about giving them up. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Part five, he emptied himself. So he's busy saying, okay, I'm going to give this up. And Peter's like, you need to get it. You need to get it. You're going to get it. He's like, no, I already had it. I'm here to give it up, not to get it. So he, Jesus is busy giving it up. And then he says in verse 35, and that's the way we do this. Not just me, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. What's man's interest? I want to save my life. I want to save my way of life. I want to preserve my comfort, my pleasure. I want things to be good. I want to win. Jesus said, that's not the way we go. That's not the way this works. I mean, what are we going to see? Peter's still not going to get it. Why? Because in a little while, 
when the soldiers show up, who's going to lead the charge again? Peter pulls out his sword, starts waving it around. We're going to win! Chops off one guy's ear. <laughs> She's like, Peter, put that away. That's not how this works. It's not the way of the cross. That's not how we do this. You've got to be willing to lose your life for the sake of the gospel, the good news. Following Jesus must include the cross. Verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He goes, this is the way. This is God's interest. And that's tough. Like Jesus, our life is not about overpowering and accumulating things for us. I mean, that's what Peter wanted Jesus to do. He wanted to overpower. Come in and let's beat the soldiers. We'll beat Rome. We'll beat everything. And Jesus like, no, I'm, that's, not, that's not what I'm doing. And that's why when Pilate said, Are you, is that your plan? He says, no, my kingdom doesn't. My kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom doesn't operate that way. If it did, then, my, yeah, my, my guys would be fighting to get me out of here. But as it is, that's not my kingdom. But even now, how much, as far, especially as far as Western Christianity, how much have we predicated our understanding of our faith in we must overpower? And why must we overpower? What are we afraid of now? Well, we must preserve our liberty so that we can worship Jesus without pain. Because heaven help, we better not have anyone tell us we can't because they might be mean to us and not, they might tell us we can't and we don't want to, they might make it hard, make us pay. Well, that's not how we want to follow Jesus. It's not supposed to hurt. It's not supposed to cost. We need to be able to do this freely. And whoever we have to run over and overpower so that we don't lose our ability to follow Jesus on our terms, our way, without pain, well, that's worth it. Right? Because it shouldn't hurt. And it definitely shouldn't cost. And we have entire movements motivated by trying to make sure that it's never costly for us to follow Jesus. So we need the power so that we can win. Whether it's winning an election or winning a war. So that we may follow Jesus our way. That's how Peter's thinking. But Jesus said that's not how the, that's not God's interest. He had the power, and he didn't come to overpower, he came to die. And he says, and that's that's the path. Guys, listen, if you're gonna follow me, here's what following me means. Pick up your instrument of death and be ready to suffer and be cursed and thought of as wrong. Because that's the way of the cross.
We need to beware of trying to help God, help God like Peter did, while misunderstanding his interests and plans. Because so often we're like, God, I'm, I'm going to help you out here. God, you don't understand. This is what we got to do. And God's like, I, I'm not hurting for power. I'm not worried about winning because I have all the power. And when the day comes, everything goes under my feet. And like Peter, we're in a hurry. But as Peter would later learn, and isn't this amazing? I just thought of this in a second. First service didn't get this. Because it's in First Peter where the man who couldn't wait for God to win says, Dear friend, he is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. But he is patient towards you, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so Peter later in his life will write to the church and say, it's not time yet. The final victory, the final conflict, he's holding off because he's patient. Because his goal is to redeem people. That's, what, that's how God defines winning. And that's why those who followed him, who met him, many who heard him that day, said, we are willing to die. And Paul, when he got it, finally figured out, he said, I count everything as lost for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus and sharing the good news. And I will gladly suffer the loss of all things that I may gain him. And Paul's life changed from a fighter to a crossman. We need to beware of trying to do this in man's way. Let's pray. Father, we do not like to suffer. I don't like to suffer, and Lord, you didn't like to suffer. As we will learn next week, you stayed up all night asking if maybe we could go a different way. In your own humanity, you had the same natural instinct we have towards self-preservation, towards an easy way. And that's why you, didn't, you couldn't deal with Peter, because you were tempted he was telling you what you wanted to hear, a way that didn't hurt so much. And Lord, we are susceptible, so susceptible to messages that tell us, hey, it doesn't have to be so hard. It doesn't have to hurt. It doesn't have to cost you. Because that's what we want to hear. That's what I want to hear. Lord, I rebel against pain. I recoil from struggle. And when I encounter it, I just want to give up. And Lord, thank you that we see you human enough to feel the same way, but yet God enough to never give into that. And you overcame the world by dying and not giving in to that human desire to put yourself over others and to find the easy way out, to serve self over others. And Lord, our world is full. And even now, our own country is being torn apart by people who all want to do what's right in their own eyes and get the power to do it. And they all think they're doing a good thing. And it's tearing us apart. 
Lord, may we be the people of the cross, carrying with us not human victory, but spiritual victory by being willing to die and to lay down our lives, knowing that brings us life eternal. That there is nothing in this world worth giving up our soul for. And that to win every earthly battle only to lose our soul is not worth doing. May our interests align with yours rather than trying to make you align with us. And may we be examples of a different way of life, the way you were. May we approach our enemies the way you approached us as your enemies. May we have the attitude you have. Thank you that Peter did eventually learn this, although he struggled. And Lord, may we continue to learn it too. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.